Hello and welcome to this edition of the Ian Abernethy podcast. You can watch videos and listen to other podcast episodes by visiting www.ianabernethy.com. So, without further ado, here's Ian Abernethy. Hello, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to the latest ianabernethy.com podcast. A slightly different format this month, Uh, we're having a question and answer podcast because it's been a while since we've done uh, one of those, but to mix things up a bit, uh, the person who's putting the questions to me is Becky, who's my girlfriend and a a Gojiru practitioner, so I I think that's worked really well because it's led to a little bit of back and forth and some conversations around the answers and uh, I hope you find it uh, of interest. Uh, Before we get into that, some couple of quick bits of news, Uh, the first one is uh, all of my books are now available on Kindle. Uh, which has been a long time in coming. So if you want to buy any of the books in that format, you can do so from the uh, various Amazon websites around the world. Uh, Also, just congratulations to Karsh and Smith and Nick Hoffley, who gained their fourth Dan with the WCA um, under my observation uh, last month. Again, a most impressive performance from, uh, from both men. And if anyone out there is also interested in joining the WCA, uh, and finding more about it, obviously visit my website or go to the World Combat Association website. And uh, the final thing is just um, this may be the last podcast before the end of the year. I'll try and sneak one in next month um, before Christmas, anyway. But um, uh, if, if uh, I don't, obviously the year's coming to an end, and my diary's starting to fill up pretty quickly for 2013. So if anyone's looking uh, to invite me for seminars or to the dojos, then uh, now would be a good time to. Um, to to do that before all the dates get taken up. So yeah, that, okay, that's me uh, finishing the introduction. Uh, we'll start uh, with the various questions. So yeah, we cover lots of different topics. It's quite a long one, but I hope you find it interesting. And um, yeah, okay, I'll hand you over to me and Becky. Okay, so we've collected quite a few questions off Facebook, Twitter, a few by email and things. And Becky, if you could ask me the first one, please. Okay. Why did traditional karate bunkai get changed when it went to Japan? And that one's from uh, Brian Crichton of Twitter. Um, Lots of reasons for that. Uh, It's almost like a kind of perfect storm in a way. If you look at, you've got uh, the Japanese martial arts are starting to be regarded as things that are uh, old-fashioned and uh, violent, not a fitting pursuit for, for, for Japanese uh, Japanese youth. You've also got the thing that at that time, as a result of that kind of uh, mindset, if you like, things like judo, um, kendo get very, very kind of uh, popular. Um, so the karate guys more or less copy that ethos. So it becomes less about effective fighting skill and more about kind of character development. I mean, you can have both, but, you know, I mean, one obviously got emphasized more than the other. I also think one of the things you've got is uh, by the time the art kind of gets to Japan, you've got them practicing in a way where they start, their only experience of violence is a practicing against one another. If you look back at the old masters, they were uh, well-versed, some of them more than others, but they were well-versed in, in what real violence was, was like. When you get people in the Japanese universities, for example, who don't know what real violence is like, they start reinterpreting the kata. And we can see this where uh, it all becomes about karate versus karate, which bears no resemblance to what actual um, uh, violence is like. So there's lots of different things, I think, but I think that's the main one. It was in order to fit with the prevailing culture in Japan, which was needed in order to make the art popular. 
So it worked. It definitely worked. But the unfortunate side was it, it, we lost kind of a lot of the uh, combative function along the way. But the great thing is, of course, because they emphasise kata, we can go back. We can look at the kata um, through the eyes of uh, realistic fighting and, re and see how they work that way. You know, we can remove that kind of little detour, if you like, to karate versus karateka, ineffectual uh, interpretation. So there's a few things to kind of explore as well. Okay. And Brian also asks, um, why is there no record of Gaydan Morshigeri in Kata? It is an effective self-defense Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't agree with him more. The, so the, the low roundhouse is a um, great technique. Um, kicking in general, sometimes you have difficulty having the space uh, in order to kick effectively. It is easier to kick people with front kicks and side kicks when you've got hold of them mm. and have good effect because you can mess up shins and joints and all that kind of stuff. Uh, a roundhouse kick to inner and outer thigh while you're grappling is unlikely to be that effective. It tends to be best employed when you've got that little bit of a, a, a space. I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying that the front kick and side kick tend to work uh, work better. So would you use that kick? Uh, I, I would use that kick, but I would, for me, I would use it as uh, if I've hit with my hands and they've kind of created a bit of space, I would use it yeah. as a follow-up in order to um, get space to, to... Well, when I run, I will say that I'm not the fastest runner in the world, but if I've taken their leg out, they're not going to be that quick at coming after me either. So I would do use, use low roundhouse a lot. Um, as to why it's not in kata... To the degree um, that it is, uh, I honestly I don't know. If I was designing a cutter, I would stick it in. I get, the only thing is, is it's not the front kick and side kick can be used very effectively when you've got hold of people. Um, I'm not so sure that you can say the same about the roundhouse. That may be why it's not there to the same degree, but it should definitely be a part of everybody's training because it is. It's a, a very effective technique. Okay, so my next question is from Lee Sims. And he says, should general fitness be taught as a key section of warm-ups in classes, for example, push-ups, sit-ups, running, etc.? Or is it something the students should train away from the dojo in their own time to enhance their overall fitness level? Yeah, I think it's a good point, that. Because I think a lot of um, warm-ups in most dojos, some people's warm-ups will be other people's training sessions. When they've got them sprinting up and down, doing press-ups and sit-ups and squats and all this kind of stuff. And they you vary know. massively, don't they, from class to class uh, as well. Ab so. Absolutely. So some of, some of them do you know, a few press-ups here and there just to get the blood going. Others, like you say, do it, like, it's almost like a full-on workout when they do it. Mm. And the trouble with that is, as well, there'll be one guy in that class that, for him, it's fine and he's warm. There'll be mm. one guy in that class that'll be absolutely exhausted by the time he's finished doing all yeah. that. Um, I, I also think, you know... I, I'm a grand believer in supplementary training and I like running. I've done a lot of weightlifting. I do do press ups and sit ups and weights and all that kind of stuff as part of my training. Um, but I would suggest that uh, I would rather, personally, the students warmed up using motions which are related to the karate. So I like them to do slow sparring, uh, grappling drills, and all that kind of stuff to get the blood going yeah. rather than doing the kind of press ups and sit ups. So it kind of draws away from the essence of what they're coming. Absolutely, you know. I mean, and again, you know, people want to come to train at the field. They've had a good workout, but they can do that by um, intense sparring drills, mm -hmm. pad work drills, lots of cat. I don't think there's a need to do the press ups and sit ups and everything else. So, um, I, I'm, I'm not adverse to dropping them into the class, but if yeah. you've got like a thirty minute fitness session yeah. during which that thirty minute fitness session has no martial content, well, get rid of it. Instead of doing press ups and sit ups, do your pad work, do your grappling drills, do something that will develop the fitness specific for the martial arts itself. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I would not be doing press-ups and sit-ups as part of the warm-up for me because they're training. It's not warm-up exercises. Yeah. I mean, it's down to individual preference and the level of people that are training. But for me, I, I wouldn't... Um, I personally wouldn't, uh, wouldn't do that. That's quite a good point, actually, because, I mean, I've come across a lot of um, instructors who have been 
quite irritated that their students seem to have it as a, a massive divide karate and fitness not being able to integrate it the way they should and the amount of times when in the class that I, I come from when students have turned up at our club where they've had sort of injuries from using kettlebells or yeah, something yeah. Com- completely sort of non-martial arts related and it's kind of got the instructor's backs up a bit so you know if, if it was through doing kata over and over and over again or something more sort of training related then it probably wouldn't have sort of irritated them the way it did but I suppose that's just another point though isn't it how you can really um submerge the two if you yeah do absolutely it and when you can do you know it's like anything else if you do if you do cut badly or punch badly or kick badly you'll get injured yeah. and if you do press ups and sit ups badly but here's another point is most martial arts instructors are good at teaching martial arts yeah now i i am as it happens a qualified fitness instructor as well but a lot of people aren't so when they teach mm. press ups and sit ups and everything else they generally teach them incorrectly yeah so people do get injured because they're not being done properly and again, it's not it's not what we're training for. Do you know what I mean? It, 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 it should be doing the martial arts stuff predominantly. So, mm. and again, I get that every class is different and everyone's got their individual preferences. But that would be my take on it. That yeah, it should be a small part of the class. It shouldn't be the main part of it. And it's, I don't think exercises like that should form part of the warm up. Yeah. Okay. All right. My next question's from Craig. Uh, I'd appreciate advice on improving balance during sidekicks, especially Kokomi. That's one of the things that's holding me back. Yeah, psychic is um, it's a chamber on the psychic that makes it different from all the others. I because, hate this kick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, like front kick, the knee knee comes up and the leg extends from it in that position. When you're doing a roundhouse kick again, the, the thigh comes up and the shin extends from it as it comes in. When you're doing the side kick, you're lifting the knee up to thrust it out. So there's mm. that kind of preparatory movement. Mm. And, and most people, when they do side kick ineffectively, are not. Uh, pulling, they're not getting the chamber right. It almost ends up like being a bad roundhouse kick in, yeah. in a way. They're not getting the chamber before they, they, they fire it out, and and so it is. A, it's it is a more difficult kick, um, I think, to, to learn. It's a really strong kick when people have got the hang of it, but it, it takes a bit of um, getting used to. But for me, balance, um, which is Craig's point, but balance is like anything else. It's a, it's a learnt skill. It's not something people have or they don't have. So. There may be some technical issues in the way that Craig's kicking that may be causing him problems. So that would be something for him to have a look at and his instructor to have a look at to make sure that the the actual kick itself is is correct. Um, the other one is which can really help um, is practicing slow kicking is a great one for balance um, because you have to balance for longer. So it's almost like you're putting a greater demand on yourself. And through doing the kick slowly, it requires good degrees of uh, muscle control um, as well. Right. So I, I think that's, um, I would, one, I would check the form. Second one, I would do the slow kick. The other one is, as well, to be aware of that um, if he's not using impact equipment, that would be a really good idea because one of the dangers of always air kicking, especially if there's an emphasis on holding the chamber when you've, you've came back, which you get some people teaching that. When you do a side kick with, with venom, when you mean it, you want your weight going forwards. When you do it against the air, because there's nothing to eat up that force, people hold the weight back in order that they can keep the balance at the end of it mm. so it's different whether you hit or you miss if you know what i mean or whether you're impacting or not so i would suggest check his form impact equipment and slow kicking start at a nice height say like mid thigh lift the knee up slowly put it out slowly bring it back and try and keep the balance and just slowly kind of elevate the height as you as, as you go because um yeah i think it was bill wallace used to say that he used to practice slow kicking to um Salmon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water, you know, so it's dead slow, gentle mm-hmm. practice. Um, and no one can doubt Bill Wallace's, uh, Bill Wallace's kicking ability. So that there may be some, some suggestions for him to try, and I hope he finds that uh, useful. 
So my next question is, Nikolai asks about original Kata and their evolution. Do we lose anything when they evolve? Yeah, so what Nikolai's is quite a long question as he's got, but what he's, he's the, the driving at is we have uh, versions of Kata, obviously the older versions, and then we get versions that as we progress, people kind of change them and alter them, and he, he, do we lose anything when that kind of happens? Um <clears throat> I think one thing is I don't think we've got. To, I don't think there was an original Kata. You know, if we look in a lot of cases, if we look back, that you can see that there's been several versions running parallel side by side. So today we have this idea of a school determines a datum, a method for how a Kata should be done, and that's the official version. If you look back in the past, that wasn't quite how it was done. There'd be four or five versions of the same Kata is one thing. The other one that we've got, which is obviously what Nikolai's driving at, is that when we have a lot of Kata today is they've been altered for non-combative purposes so we get katas that are made uh, to make them physically more demanding or visually more pleasing or something along those um, kind of lines and you know do we lose anything can kind of combatively when we do that well it, it depends to me i mean i say to my students if, if you're doing if your kata is a traditional kata um You'll, you'll be fine. You'll be able. To, there will have been changes made. So, for example, shorter contents have a little bit longer stances. Uh, in Wado, just my kind of style that I've begun in, a lot of the movements that were middle level have been made head height. Every style's got them. They've got these little changes that have gone on. And so long as you're aware of them, you can say, okay, this is how the style that I do does these things. Yeah. But you know, we can kind of wind it back and we can look at the options and see whether what, what's most relevant. Um, the Part of the, the issue is is when it's been changed to, for a really non-combative purpose quite significantly. So, for example, if you were to look at a lot of cutters where these kicks are now head height instead of knee height. Now, if you're aware that it's been done for training purposes, then by all means, when you do your solo cutter, do the kick head height. It won't do any arm at all. You know, you're still getting the flexibility and the physical benefits. But when you come to do your application drills, you remember that the information the cat has recorded is a knee-height kick. Or you could vary it. You could do it sometimes head-height, sometimes knee-height. Because one of the problems we've got today is, as well is, we, um, whether we like it or not, um, if you want to interact with the wider karate world, there has to be some conformity in the way a cat has done. So um, it's one of the issues I have. What do you mean? Well, because it, let's say that... Um, well, but I live in a fairly rural area, so yeah. I teach my students. So let's say I was to say, right, I'm changing the kata. I'm going to change it so I believe this is a um, a better way to drill it. So I'm going to alter this so we do it this 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 way, which in one hand has got very positive effects. The negative is when I have a lot of students leave to go to other places for work in university, they're now practicing a version of the kata that won't fit with how anyone else is doing it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so they end up being disconnected. So so long as they're aware that, okay, this is how the solo form is done today, but these changes have been made to it, blah, 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 I don't really think it's that great an issue because the solo kata is there just as a... Um, to ensure the continuity of information. So if we're, if we're aware of how things have been altered as we go, then it's no problem. We're aware of what we're doing today and what we're doing um, historically. When cut has been altered, so there's, and there are only little changes as well, to be fair. You know, in all of the main modern styles, the changes are made are rarely radically significant. It's when someone started adding in like cartwheels into it and backflips into it and things like that, you just got to say, okay, it's, it's been so far removed from its original purpose, it's now dysfunctional. But for me, I've, I've never felt the need to kind of like, okay, well, we've got to wind back to the original kata. For those that belong to schools like Gojuru, Shotokan, Wadaru, Shitoryu, uh, Shukakai, all, all these, Chokushin, all these different styles, all of those styles will do different kata. 
um, and they've been altered for various purposes. But in terms of uh, a means to record what's gone before and to give them a basis and a knowledge pool to draw from their own training, they're all fine as they are. I don't think there's that need to kind of wind them back. Um, you just need to be aware of the evolution of your style so you understand the version that you, you're doing. You see, mm. uh, Never found that one style is radically better than another or, or anything in, in, in that regard. It's uh, well, I'll just The analogy I use um, is often says, if, if I was to write down a piece of poetry uh, on using a green felt-tip pen yeah. on a brown piece of paper, and then uh, you were to write down the same bit of poetry on your computer in a perfect font and print it out on laser jets and then we put them on the bit of a wall from the other side of the room and you say to people are those the same and the obvious response is no when you look at them on the surface they're not the same but if anyone walks up and reads the information within it they can say yeah it's different ways of recording the same stuff and that's what i tend to find with the style uh, variations on it you see so and we just need to be aware of what they've been made and why the, the way they are so it's a good question but i don't think there's a need to abandon in air quotes, modern kata, the fine as they are. It's it's what principles exist within them, and to best understand those principles, you need to be aware of the evolution of your own style. Alan Chan and Steve Neal, they've got um, two separate questions on joint problems. So they both suffer from arthritis. Um, Alan in the feet, which restricts his mobility and limits his kicking. Um, Steve has it in his elbow as well. Um, I just want to focus it in on something that Steve says, where he says... Um, I have severe arthritis in my elbow and um, it's hard training and I think that I won't finish, I won't be able to finish off. But would I still, I'd still like the self-confidence in it to be able to defend myself. This is, I mean, we've spoken about this yeah, before, yeah. haven't we? Because I've got joint problems, so this is obviously something that interests me as well. Um, I, there's been times when I thought, well, should I just not train at all? And then other people have said, well, no, you do what you can. But I suppose you raised a really good question, um, a point the other day when you said incorporate things more like awareness training and, perhaps um depending on the level of your sort of injury you may have to change the type of training that yeah, you're, sort of you're doing yeah yeah well so I mean, the bottom line is you know somebody with uh without knee problems or elbow problems is going to be able to train in ways that somebody with those problems can um if we measure by effectiveness it shouldn't make that big a difference because the guy who can't say like you know okay can't punch effectively well with his right arm because he's got joint problems well, he learns to fight, strike effectively with his left. He finds ways which he can fight effectively on his body type. In the same way, we've all got to do that. I mean, I've got short, fairly short legs, so there's certain techniques and throws that don't work for me because my legs aren't short enough. I've got above average strength, so there's certain things that work well for me that wouldn't work well for others. So we're all put together physically differently, and we have to train in a way that's most effective for us. And I think that's one of the big problems with modern styles because the measurement, the datum with which we regard success isn't whether people are effective anymore, it's whether they conform to a certain look. So you may get a student who says, well, I can't drop into that stance because I have hip problems. That doesn't mean he can't be effective in, an, in another way. Um, so obviously if you've got joint problems, you need to stay away from anything that's going to make your joints worse, obviously. But then the techniques that you can do, you work them to a point where you're extremely effective at I would also suggest that a good instructor should acknowledge that rather than saying, well, you can't do it the one way that we deem as the right way, therefore you're out the door. There's lots of ways in which people can be um, uh, effective martial artists. And I've even had this question before. Like, I remember once I got an email from a guy, I think he was like in his late 80s or 90s, yeah. talking about effective self-defense. And he said, well, look, I can't punch, I can't kick, I can't run very fast. What can I do? 
and that's the point you just raised about you know, for real self defence. It's it's not about the physical. That's a bad habit martial artists mm, it have runs got. Deeper than that, it, it? Of course it is. I mean, so the guy, the 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 guy who's in his twenties, who is super fit, has no joint problems, and can hit like a mule, who has no awareness skills, no sense of personal security, no sense of personal responsibility. Yeah. He is far more likely to be a victim of crime than the ninety-year-old guy who goes about his business on a daily basis without going into pubs and getting drunk thinking about his, his own safety, thinking about the security of his home. So if, if, if it's self-defense that we're talking about, it's the physical side of it's not that, it's not as significant as a lot of people would, would think. The, the most important part is the awareness side of it, whereas martial artists tend to forget the awareness side of it, the security side of it, the personal safety side of it, or they'll give it lip service, they don't look at it in any great depth, mm. um, and then say, well, it's all about the physical. Um, so I would suggest is, you know, self-defense-wise, um, talking generally here, not these two guys in, in particular, but self-defense-wise, you need to have the full package. Uh, if you have got injuries and stuff, you need to be able to work around them. And, and you can do that. I popped my knee uh, once, and it was a year I couldn't kick. Mm. But, I, I mean, I, even if I pivoted on it, it would give way, and I would end up falling on the ground. But I was still able to progress during that time just by training around it. Um, and I believe that if that knee had never recovered, I'd still be able to kind of physically protect myself because I would have worked other things. And we just mentioned him later. Bill Wallace is a really good example of this because Bill Wallace couldn't kick with one leg at all. And I remember there was an interview with him said, do you think you would have been a more effective fighter if you could have used both legs? And he went, no. He said, because every time that everyone else did 10,000 kicks with each leg, I did 20,000 with my left leg. Yeah. So yeah. if there's something that is hurting you or harming you, we'll just work around it and, and find a skill which will measure by effect which won't say, oh, well, you can't drop into this stance so you can't hold this position, therefore you're not good. You'll, you'll find ways in which you can be effective um, that will be in keeping with your body type. Some, sometimes um, I think people's sort of self-confidence can come into it as well because I mean, I've suffered injuries and I've dislocated my knees as well. And although they're very real injuries and they, of course, they, they restrict me massively, a lot of it is a confidence issue as well. And yeah. I think it's sort of getting past that as well. And I just wanted to draw upon um, a couple of points that you made um, a few minutes ago. Um, are you the kind of instructor where you would rather your student was... Um, we're taking someone that's restricted anyway, yeah, not, yeah. not just anyone, someone that's restricted due to any kind of sort of injury. Are you the kind of instructor who would rather their student was good, had a really good right hook and a one good Mike Erie than being sort of average across the whole spectrum of, of all the techniques that you teach in your class? Yeah, well, there's a balance with it, isn't there? Because the phrase of uh, a change is always only as good as its weakest link. So if a guy's only got one good punch but can't has no gripping skills, mm. he's, a, he's vulnerable. Mm. But having said that... Uh, one of my uh, mission statement on the front of my syllabus says that I want students to reach a level of individual excellence. So I don't define what excellence is and says everybody has to do this the same way. So I'd rather that we had a guy who was, I'll give an example, right? With one of my black belts was not the greatest of kickers. He was very tough in his hips. He could deliver good low level kicks, yeah. you know, and that, and that was it. But he was a great puncher and he was an exceptional grappler. Now, if you looked at his kicking on its, its own, you'd say, hmm, his kicking's not that effective. But overall, because of the package that he had, he was... They're uh, still an all-rounder they're as a very artist, Exactly, yeah. they're a very effective martial artist. So, that, therefore, I mean, that's why he gets he's downgraded with me, mm. because he's competent at everything and exceptional at some things. Yeah. You know, um, and we, we don't obviously want to um, have levels of incompetence 
but I, I think that the way it should be, it should be geared to the individual because we're all different. Every single person has different yeah. mental and physical characteristics. And if we try and impose one size fits all on people, it just doesn't work. What works for my 18 right. stone student isn't going to work for my seven stone student. Mm. But they can all be excellent in their own way, you see. So that, that's how I would, um, I would have it. Okay, so um, Steve Neal also asks a second question. Uh, also, what are your thoughts on punching with weights to increase power? Um, I don't like it. Why don't you like it? Um, uh, because it's, it's against the specificity of it, I think. So let's... Uh, I, I'm a grand believer in weightlifting. Is that kind of like Hojo Undo type sort of yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'll... And again, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just giving my preference on it. I, I'm a grand believer in weight training i found it has made me faster more explosive and i have very few joint injuries the ones i have had like my knee for example the only reason my knee is absolutely fine now is because the muscles around it are strong muscles yeah. so i'm a grand believer in in, in in weight training to supplement martial training but however and i do believe it makes you a stronger puncher because it makes the muscles it, 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 uh, stronger and more explosive so you can hit harder as, as a result but one of the uh, the punching with weights is like you put the dumbbells in your hand and do a punch. Why I don't like that is if you think about it, can the, that cause too much tension. Well, in the punch? it can really hurt the joint. Is one yeah. thing. You know, that, that's that's another thing. If you fire the weight out, it can hyperextend the joint. The other one is uh, if you think about, let's say, you put a weight in your left hand and throw a jab. The weight is pulling your fist down, down towards the earth. That's what it's doing. When you fire the punch, it's not the ability to keep your arm up that you want. You want the power to be in the direction of the punch. So having a weight in your hand to me doesn't really work because a lot of the muscle is, is working and keeping that weight up, which isn't something you'll have when you have a bare fist. So it's 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 an un, the direction of force that you're resisting isn't realistic. Do you think that that would depend on the way that you punch anyway? Because um, I remember like Rowan Stevenson was on your forum and he raised that really good um, question about different what kind of punch was yeah different types of mechanics for punching yeah. no no for this one I think it's the same applicable no, for both yeah absolutely because when you've got the weight in your hand if you imagine when the arm's fully out the, 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 your, the muscles that will be resisting that weight are the ones that want your hand to drop down yeah you know what I mean so it, it's not the kind of, a better way to do it is um, resistance bands if you put a resistance band against the wall or a rubber band and you or a uh, car tire inner tube stuff if you hold the weight and then push out with it then the resistance that the resistance band's giving you is in the direction of the punch right. so i would say that was far better and far safer than holding weights in your hand to do it so i know a lot of people do it my one of my instructors used to do it in fact two of my instructors did and they'll swear by it do you do no no, no. Why, I, why not because i've just never found it to be effective training time has to be really kind of prioritized for me i like yeah. to make sure that everything i do i'm getting maximum benefit and I've just found that that never works. I will do endurance-based stuff with weight in my hand to burn my shoulders out, but to increase power, which is Steve's question, nah, I don't, I don't, I don't see that working. Adam Ryan was wondering if you could cover some tips on time management and prioritisation in regards to training. Similarly, Jim Woodcock uh, wanted to know how do you split your training between the three aspects of the Marshall Map. Okay, so I'll, I'll briefly, most of you, if you listen to the podcast, will know what they mean by the, the Marshall Map side of it. That was one of the first ones that you did, wasn't it? Well, you did that. It was a long well, one, yeah. yeah, I did a couple of years ago, but it, it's um, uh, like an audiobook one. But basically, what it is, is I, I see three areas of, of training. Uh, we've got martial arts, fighting, and self defense. And they all overlap. Some things are exclusive to each area, some things belong to two and not the third, some things belong to all three. 
And if you not you want more explanation of that, if you just go to the website and you can download the Marshall Map um, audio book, you know, um, find it under the podcast section. So I'll answer that one first because that's the broad stuff. See, I don't really do that. I don't kind of go, right, we've done some martial arts. Now we should do some fighting. Now we should do some self-defences. What, what I primarily use the martial map as a tool for is to make sure the students, and me as well, are always clear on what we're training for at any given point. So if I was to get them to do um, some moving around while throwing punches at each other, blocking the punches and throwing counters... I would make it clear to them this is a fighting drill. It has some relevance to self-defense in terms of your ability to move and hit multiple opponents, but it's not. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's fighting drill. It's not a self-defense-based drill. That's not what we're practicing at the minute. So while it might have a slight overlap with self-defense, that's primar- not primarily what it is. So that's how I, I, would, I would do it, really. Um, in, in my practice, which is kind of getting to Jim's question, I guess, is um, I am primarily... Uh, self-defense focused um, with uh, I've never really put percentages on it but you know if I'd say it was something like kind of you know 45% or something would be kind of um, self-defense based you know about 35% being kind of fighting and the rest being kind of martial arts you know martial arts being for studying interest but again they do overlap so you can't really say one's exclusive or the other but for me it's mainly self-defense a good proportion of fighting and um, a, a lesser emphasis on art for art's sake. Although I do regard those things as obviously been really kind of um, relevant to and um, significant. As regards the time management thing, I think this is it's a, the way you view things. Because when you get into a more bunk eye focused form of practice, you suddenly find you're doing a lot of stuff. So you are doing. Uh, You'll do line work, you'll do kata like everybody else does. You'll do sparring, but you'll do lots of different types of sparring. You'll do uh, grappling drills, you'll do throwing, you'll do locking, you'll do choking, strangling, trapping, um, you know, kicking, punching, all this kind of stuff. Escaping skills, uh, verbal de-escalation skills, knowledge of law, um, physical conditioning, you'll do all these things. But if you try and approach them all as separate entities, one is it doesn't really work because you get a very uh, uh, unholistic form of practice. Um, and the second thing is you just run out of time so the, the, the trick is to do things whereby you're hitting several of these areas all at once so it goes back to what we were saying about the warm-ups before so my students will do grappling every single session because normally we do that as part of the warm-up so rather than do a warm-up which has no bearing to martial arts that's what I'll do my conditioning drills are primarily kind of impact based pad work based so mm-hmm. they're practicing impact and technique at the same time as the work and the conditioning yeah. our kata leads into our pair work so our pair work is kata it's straight out of kata almost all our pair work is kata drilled so when they do kata and the bunkai drills the two person drills it's effectively the same thing one's with a partner one's without a partner our sparring is kata based so the techniques that they do in the two man drills and kata also find their way into sparring or at least a lot of it so um, that's the, the the trick to it to me to manage time is is to get every every form of practice should hit several areas at once and it's a better way to practice because you get holistic and integrated training than I feel um, but there, I mean there's an art to it you know but I get that a lot people look at what we do in every given club night and say wow we did this 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 and this and this but it's because everything overlaps and everything's integrated so we cover a lot of areas with everything that we do really but it is a challenge and people do have to find a way to deal with that if because you can't say, oh, I'm not doing punching anymore because we did kicking tonight. You know, you need, you need to find a way why, why everything gets practiced efficiently. 
and again that's the idea to integrate things you know get things to kind of overlap and look to train in, in time efficient ways so yeah. yeah that's how i would do it okay so stan roderick has um an interesting question he said he'd be very interested to hear more about the physical and emotional processes of actual confrontation now, the reason why i do i do find this one interesting and surely i'm being very presumptuous here but i presume you're going to bring scenario training into this to kind of if he wanted yeah, yeah, yeah. to scale the way his i don't know if he has a group him or his group um what level they're at because obviously he's very very um we're all we're all made up of the same thing but depending on the way we train the nature of the way the way we train or if we train at all most people obviously don't train um we'll react differently won't we i mean what are your thoughts on that yeah no well well that's so a couple of things with that is yeah so in terms of that that's something we should probably do a, a good podcast on itself i think you know because yeah, it, it, it's one that we've kind of touched on several times but we've never really broken down uh fully in itself but you can't ignore it that's that's the point where um whereas a lot of people tend to there are, there are things that are just undeniable facts that as soon as you are under high levels of stress your body and your brain alter in order to deal with the whatever's causing the problem and so training needs to take that into effect so it works with what your body's going to do instead of trying to run counter to what your body's trying to do yeah so a dead simple example is uh fine motor skills vanish uh, and everybody knows this if you've had a job interview and someone's asked you to sign your name and you know how difficult it be or button a shirt or tie a shoelace it's when you're scared big adrenaline dump, isn't it, uh, absolutely so everyone's had experience of it so fine motor skills go so any technique which relies on fine motor skills isn't going to work not because necessarily there's something wrong with the technique and it'll work fine in the dojo when you you're calm it won't work when you're under stress because your body your body alters anything that requires a lot of thinking won't work very well because we don't think well when we're under stress um, which goes back to your, your point. That, that, that's, that's, so what we need to do is there's an intellectual understanding of it, which I think can be really useful. So you, t you explain to students, this is what's going to happen. And they, they all know it. So you get butterflies in your stomach because the body takes blood away from your digestive system to move it somewhere else. So when you get butterflies, don't freak out. It's normal. You'll go white. And the reason your body does that is because it takes blood away from the skin in order to put it into the muscles where it's, it's kind of needed. It also means you'll bleed a little bit less if you get scratch cut bitten whatever right yeah. um there's all, all all that kind of stuff you will get things like tachydysmorphia where time your perception of time will change there's the example i think i can't remember which one it was but some military unit where that the, they were having uh soldiers stopping firing because they thought the guns were malfunctioning and the rate of fire seemed to be slowing down but it wasn't it was their perception so people need to be intellectually educated as to what is going to happen to your body during it but this is where your point comes in is and um, i think we've got a question on this later on as well but the the you need to recreate those sensations in training so people know what they feel like and don't freak out about them why why they when they when they happen yeah so they understand that okay you know my mouth's gone dry my muscles are shaking i feel uh, anxious uh, my heart's pounding uh, you know and a lot the, of it's about understanding what it is isn't it absolutely because then people at the end they just go okay here it is mm. you know it's, it's 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 as natural as feeling hungry or thirsty or sleepy you know what i mean but the difference is because the way we live our lives today most people as martial arts we probably do but as most people we don't get scared every day so when the sensations happen it's like you imagine never being hungry and then suddenly having that sensation it would freak you right out you know what i mean because you just you're not used to experiencing i can't it. imagine ever <laughs> 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 all right okay yeah but you know what i mean or, or, yeah. i've never felt thirsty or never feeling tired yeah so once people are used to feeling scared in air quotes it's totally natural it's totally normal everybody feels it 
And that's why drilling it so many times is has so much importance, doesn't it? Absolutely, because if people experience it, they know what it is. But his point about the aftermath is a real good one, I think. I think it is as well, because he, he quotes here, he said, after he's been in um, a confrontation like that, he said, so many people, including himself, find himself in a situation where he'd say, I should have done this, or why didn't I do that after any form of conflict? And I think, again, that ties in very well with um, a question... Um, later on about the scenario training and depending on what kind of scenario training you do i know that the stuff that we do incorporates um an after action review yeah and i think that's equally as important if not more than the actual scenario uh, training uh, itself correct absolutely yeah so so people um need to kind of i like that old phrase i say it's better to die a thousand times in the dojo than once in reality yeah so that the dojo training should realistically or as realistically as possible and practically reflect um what's likely to happen and then people afterwards can look at the performance honestly and think, well, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? You know what I mean? So I think that that's important. Um, the other one as well is, because we'll, we'll come to that in, in a moment, but the, the other one with regards to this is, if people feel scared, you know, again, in, in air quotes, they shouldn't beat themselves up about it. They should know it's normal and natural. It's also quite normal to have kind of all kinds of emotions after the event as well, you see. It's just, it's just the way that, that it is, and it's just not something wrong with you and if you train in the correct way you'll understand all this you'll appreciate it and when those feelings come that they're not a um a shocker for you you, you understand it a, a classic example i mentioned this before i once got an email from a guy who told me he'd been at a train station late at night he'd spotted two guys walking towards him he recognized that one of them was holding a knife he dropped his luggage and ran before they were anywhere near him uh, and then he wrote me an email saying, I feel terrible, I've trained in martial arts for years, I, you know, I feel like I'm a coward, You know, uh, I should have dealt with it differently, I want to know how I can change my training and, and what would you have done. And, and I told him, well, you dealt with it perfectly. He yeah, spotted, he spotted the situation a million miles before they got anywhere near you. You knew exactly what was going on, you were escaped and out of that situation before they even got close. His yeah. self-defense skills were perfect in mm. my view. He did everything right. But he's, through his training, he's obviously been conditioned to, that's not what you do. Mm. And this is the danger of uh, martial artists teaching self-defense. It's just fighting, it's fighting, it's this fighting. This is a really good point, yeah. So, so he, he feels his training failed him, you know what I mean? Which, by the sounds of it, it probably did. He didn't fail himself, but what should have happened is he should have ran away and he should have felt good about it, mm. knowing that my awareness was bang on there and I did exactly the right thing. And yes, I feel scared and yes, I'm ready for the come down and yes, I know I'm going to be a bit emotional about it. Um, and he understands all that. And, and that's... Um, what you need for that and I, i've got i won't give details but i've got students that i personally teach who've been in extreme situations where the training is is has kicked in and it's also helped them deal with it after the event as well because they know this all these emotions that are kicking up on the feeling that, that they understand that they're normal and natural and there's nothing wrong with them for feeling them so it is it's a key part anyone claiming to tra train self-defense who doesn't do this in depth is failing the students massively yeah that, that's a really really good point i think it also um it depends on what kind of club you're from and what your instructor's teaching and one of the things that i have learned and i've been taught is whenever we've done these types of scenario drills um it's very 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 personal and individual your response is very personal sometimes there's not a right or wrong answer i've seen an instructor um give a round of applause when a guy's handed the knife over and said go on then and walked off and he passed the flying colors i've seen someone pile into the guy and manage to get away with all his belongings and again the instructor said well done you've done exactly what you need to do so i think it, it very much is a personal decision and it's it, sometimes it can i think it can take quite a degree degree of 
arrogance to stand there and say to someone, "You should do this." Well, yeah, I, I get that. That's that's true. Um, um, what as an instructor, what you can do is you can say you tactically made errors. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So you can still say, "Well, well done, you won," mm. but you meant you did like for example, if there was a situation where there was a gang of them were doing a, and they could have escaped and they decided to beat all four of them up and won, yeah, yeah. that's impressive. It's yeah. still a big tactical error to yeah, have done no, that. Absolutely. So, you know, so, so you, as an instructor, you can say, you know, you made a tactical error there, even though the, end, the result was right. Yeah. You can even have a situation where people do tactically the right thing, but it all goes wrong because mm. the people are facing also did tactically it's the right complex, thing. Isn't it? It, it is. It, it's, it's, it's very difficult. But the, for this point here, on, the, on the, the emotional side of it, you need to experience it in the dojo. You need to have an intellectual, uh, intellectual and an actual experience of it and the need to be well-educated on it. And it's one of these differences between self-defense and martial arts and fighting. I haven't said that. I mean, the other side of it, just when we're talking about crossovers, mm. that self-awareness that you get from doing that is something that can help with everyday life as well. So it's never... The jitsu and the door are never quite as distinct as people say they are. There is a, there is a balance, though, isn't there? Because from, from my own personal experience, obviously, as you know, I, I spend a, a lot of time at different stations and waiting for sort of... Um, connections and stuff like that and i have found myself being a little bit too cautious of what's around me i have been a little bit too over the top where i'm looking around too much i'm having to make sure that i've got one bag that's underneath my foot and i can feel it with my foot and then yeah. the other one is, is is next to me and i'm it's also acknowledging the fact that when you're being too suspicious because when you are that could provoke a response in you where you could become more aggressive than perhaps you ever needed oh, to be yeah, yeah. and it's just that that fine balance and i i have to call myself on it all the time no, ever since i started training I, th I think all martial artists have that because the, the, the there is another danger we, we go to a, a dojo or a self-defense school or whatever and then we're told about the dangers that exist the dangers that exist the dangers that exist mm. when you look statistically I mean this doesn't help anyone who's a victim of crime and the fact no. is that the vast majority of people in the martial arts are there for a reason most of them who really want self-defense training do so because they feel there's a need for it yeah. so, so it, it, within martial arts schools it, generally most people in there have had some experiences or they know somebody who's hard or there's some reason why they're there in the first place but, but in the general public the chances of you being a victim of violent crime in the United Kingdom which we're actually pretty remote Mm. Once you get beyond your twenties and you're not hanging around bars anymore for meals, it's it's pretty remote. <laughs> um, Becky's laughing because she's still in her twenties. <laughs> um, but but there's that it is it's 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 different on that. I think one of my students once did the maths and he said to be the victim of a violent crime where it was so bad that you would have to go to hospital for treatment would average for the average kind of UK citizen. If you averaged out the percentage of that happen every year, it'd be every something like once every one thousand four hundred years. That, you know what yeah. I mean? So, so no, the, no, no, it's not. Really. No, I mean, and it doesn't help those who are. But you, you're right. There's, different areas as well. Oh, I, I, absolutely so. depends. No, but that was across the country. That was the average. But you're right. Mm. If you live in some areas, there's, it's much higher chance than if you live in others. Mm. But that was averaged out for everybody across the country. The fact is, like I say, if you're in your twenties, you're far more as a male. You're far more likely to be a victim of violent crime than any other age because that's the way that twenty-year-old guys make act. themselves vulnerable, and it, yeah. it's the way they hang out. You know what I mean? They're full of testosterone and drink, and it's inevitable that it happens. You know. So, um, but the, the um, uh, the the the, the, the precautions you take need to be proportionate to the actual risk, and that's the point. Absolutely. So if the precautions you take are uh, uh, um, beyond the risk, that's unhealthy. So fear of crime can sometimes be more damaging than crime itself. And I agree. If you know people who are, I'm too scared to leave the house. I don't kind of trust anybody. I wear a Kevlar baseball cap every time I leave, and I've got yeah. stab-proof vests, and I've got. You just think the, the life that they're living 
is not a healthy life as well. But if you get people going the other extreme, where it's nothing ever bad will happen to me, I, I don't need to wear a seatbelt when I drive, I can yeah. trust everybody that I meet, and it's too far the other way. So we need to kind of try and find that happy medium and always be aware, well, am I being paranoid here? Or, or, or am I being uh, overly lax? And if you find just that middle ground, basically, yeah, it is. Yeah. And being aware of the, the, the crime and the statistics around it. And it's another thing. Is like self-defense wise. That's why instructors tr claiming to teach self-defense should be well aware of the crime statistics in the area in which they're teaching it, so they can put it across to students in a realistic way. Um, some, you know, you see, if you if you get instructors who teach it, look, there's crime everywhere, and everybody you meet's a potential rapist, and there's this going to happen and that going to happen. You know, it, it can lead to people being paranoid and scared. And as a martial arts instructor, you're doing your students a great disservice if you if you you, you do that. There the needs to be that kind of balance to say, yes, these things can happen, and here's the best chance of avoiding them. But realistically. Most people will lead a happy life and won't come into contact with violence if they do the right kind of things. And if you do, then obviously that's when you know everything that we do comes in. But we can't be kind of paranoid about it. So um, that was quite. Thanks for that one, Stan. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think we've answered your question and loads more. But we'll uh, we'll, um, we'll move on to the next one. Garth Gilmore. He would like to talk about special considerations when training female students especially those in careers or situations where there is a real risk of a violent assault. Well, I want to do a podcast on this properly at, at some point because there are some uh, significant differences. The, the obvious one is physically. You know, Generally speaking, men are physically larger and physically stronger than women, right? Yeah. So in terms of the selection of techniques that you would maybe use, it would vary from male to female on that basis. But that applies to whether you've got a big guy or a small guy as well. So that's the obvious one, and it might be the one that most listeners are thinking of. So we'll just throw that to one side because it's obvious and simple. The other difference that most people don't get is men and women are likely to face different types of violence. Um, so if we look at the British crime survey figures, and if I remember these correctly, uh, the most likely way for a man or a woman to die in the UK, the most likely way for them to both to die is to be stabbed by somebody. Uh, if you take that out, the most likely way for a man to die is to be kicked or punched to death. The most likely way for a woman to die is uh, to be strangled. Most likely person to kill a man is a complete stranger. Most likely person to kill a woman is someone she knows, typically husband or lover. And the most likely place for a man to be killed is somewhere that serves alcohol or around somewhere that serves alcohol. The most likely place for a woman to be killed is in her own home. So these radically differ. So when men teach self-defense, you often see it done from almost like the bar fight scenario. Um, you know, so it's, you know, a guy looks at you funny, spills your drink, all this kind of stuff, you see, which is relevant to, to, to men. It's not so relevant um, to, to, to women. Uh, for example, you know, when I'm teaching self-defense courses, Cooper's color codes, everybody knows those, you know, like awareness codes, so white, I'm switched mm. off, yellow, I'm aware, um, or amber, I'm aware of a threat and I'm deciding what to do. do you teach those yes, students? I do, yeah. yeah. From very first grade, uh, they have to be able to um, answer questions on Cooper's color codes and a thing we call the threat awareness pyramid, yeah. you know, so... Chris with, Wilder mentions that in his books as well, doesn't he? Well, it does, because without it, it's irrelevant, you know mm. what I mean? Physical skills without a healthy attitude to personal safety are, are irrelevant. Yeah. So for a man, it would, you know, typically if you were running through scenarios that were relevant to men, it would be, okay, you know, so somebody's looking at you funny, you know, they've been staring at you for a while. It's these kind of things that would trigger, okay, maybe something's going to happen here in like a bar environment, if you like. For a woman, what we need to make sure we do is that the, if we're teaching female students, they need to be aware of the dynamics of dysfunctional relationships. 
because you know the more likely way that's likely to happen to them is over the longer term. So say you know when I teach like the um, the local schools for example, so you've got like seventeen, eighteen year old girls there, is like you know if your uh, boyfriend is incredibly possessive, if he loses his temper very quickly, if he's always asking for um, you know show me your text messages, where have you been? Uh, you said you'd be here five minutes ago. You were talking to that guy and I didn't like it. This kind of stuff. That should be when she's in court amber, you know what I mean, orange. That's when she, when she should be thinking this relationship could be problematic. So the, that's different, again, for males and females. I mean, it can happen for males as well. There are plenty of men where th those kind of things have happened to as well. But generally speaking, in broad brush terms, those things need to be included. Uh, when it comes to workplace scenarios as well, so, um, you know, so whether it be men or women are in a, a job where uh, violence is, is possible, there's a legal obligation on employers to make sure that people can go to work safely. So when I used to work in the nuclear industry, they had to train me in how to successfully navigate my way through high contamination and high radiation environments in such a way nothing bad happens to me. So if someone works in a place of employment where violence is likely, there is an obligation on those employers to make sure that is mitigated. Uh, now, and in a lot of cases it does, but I know of like teachers at school teachers, um, so again, female school teacher may get it off male pupils. Uh, I've also known of women who've worked as air hostesses, similar thing where the training in uh, nurses is another one, you know, guys drunk and injured and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But the training generally given is, I would say, extremely substandard. Um, it's uh, generally doesn't take in any account the reality of violence. It's like, you know, put your hands on the shoulders and ask them to calm down and this kind of stuff. It, 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 very poor. And as we all know, unless something's drilled repeatedly, there's not much chance of being able to get it to, um, to work, really. So we do get people coming to us as martial arts instructors for things related to the jobs. I've even had police officers do that as well because their training is generally not as good as it should be in certain areas. Mm. Um, so what I would suggest is as well is if we need to kind of try to change that, I think, and people need to kind of do whatever they can to raise with employers that if this happens to people, then, you know, the, the need to make sure that the training in place or the security measure in place and not the employee's responsibility, they are the employer's responsibility. So that's, that's another kind of area I think that needs to be uh, considered. Um, so yeah, yeah, though there are different considerations for females and you can't teach female stuff. And one of the sad things as well is most martial arts instructors are male. So we tend to teach things from a male centre perspective, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. Um, but we need to be aware of the considerations that females also face in order to do our female service, uh, students uh, justice. Daniel Hurd, he, um, he's got a question that's probably best answered by you. He wants to know about how to balance work with training. Um, I think a lot of people probably mistake your work for training sometimes, don't they? Yeah. And um but also he wants to know uh, specifically for people if they've got um, conflicting work or dojo hours, how do you navigate around that so that you can still um, train regularly? Yeah. See, every, just on my personal yeah. circumstances, because that, that's what you know. So I'm a full-time martial arts instructor. So people think, you know, you spend all day, every day, you know, just kind of training and doing what I do. But there's, yeah. my workload and work rate is huge. You know, like um, I work far harder now than I ever did when I was working as an electrician and for less money as well. Um, the, the love of it is, though, that's what the, the, the where the reward is. It's in the love of it. But I do have, I have the same balances as everybody else. 
because in addition to I've got to answer all the emails that come in, I've got to get these podcasts recorded, I've got to get uh, videos done for people, I've got uh, classes to teach, I've got um, three young children um, to, to look after, I've got lots and lots of demands on my time as much as everybody else's. So it, the same issues apply to me too. Uh, more so, I guess, because you know I'm a full-time martial artist. I need to keep on top of my training. I need to be on top of my game. So it's not a, um, a luxury thing for me. It's something I, I need to do. Um, the thing with it as well is, I, one thing is, so when you go to the class, when you go to the dojo, you'll do typically an hour and a half session you know, twi twice a week. And that's obviously very beneficial and very, very useful. But you can supplement that with uh, solo training or private group training as well. So if you can't make a class on a given night, rather than saying, oh, I can't go, what can be a good idea is to say, well, okay, what are the areas in which I'm weak? So you might go to a class and you'll do, generally speaking, a lot of what you'll do will be dictated by everyone else who's there. So let's say you're having a problem with a particular motion. It might be you might not practice that movement at all in the entire class because the instructor's got other things he wants to cover that night. So you maybe on occasion say, well, look, I can't make training tonight, but when I can get home, what I'll do is I'll spend 20 minutes on that technique that's providing me a bit of difficulty or I'll, yeah. I'll walk through that kata. And, and, and in doing that, doing little bits of training away from the dojo that are focused on the things that you need to improve on, that can be very, very beneficial. I bet there are more people that don't do that than do do that as well. I mean, I'm really guilty for that myself. I think, well, everyone is, because normally part of the, um, the joy of being a student is you go to the dojo and the instructor takes care of everything. Yeah. But, but again, if these, you know, which instructors listen to this will know, if there's 30 people in the class, you have to say, okay, what will benefit this 30 group the most? Yeah. And obviously you can individualize things and you can split people off and blah, blah, blah. But um, So I, I also think that, that that's a really um, useful thing to do. The other thing is to remember is the value of your training is not in the quantity of it, it's in the quality of it. So if someone was to say, well, I did two hours of training, that sometimes that could mean two hours of very moderately paced, barely baking sweat training on things you can already do well. So in which case, that two hours of training is largely pointless. Um, as opposed to the guy who can get right, I had 20 minutes, it was absolutely really intense, it physically left me on my knees, and I worked all those techniques that I'm struggling with. That would be a more beneficial form of, of, of training, really. So it's... We need to measure training by the quality of it, not by the the, the quantity of it. And we've we've all got those issues as well. And the other things, you know, you, you do need to prioritise as well. And so you, things like, you know, family have to come first, employment has to come first, relationships with people are more important, you know. And then you put your training in and around that uh, as and when you can. So it's not everybody should do that. There'll come a point where everybody goes can't train tonight, but the idea is you make it up somewhere else. You you find a way of ensuring that you 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 stay kind of on on top of it. I agree. Uh, we had the question uh, previously about the punching with the weights. So, yeah. uh, Jeremy Mont's question ties in really well. He said he wonders what you recommend as helpful training for those of us without weights. And he's um, he's saying that he he can afford karate or he can afford going to the gym. But he can't afford both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he wants to do some sort of. Um, extra training but he's asking whether he can, can he tie that in with extra press ups or yeah, things yeah. that you can do yourself that you don't have to pay money for basically yeah yeah uh, absolutely but that, that might even be going getting to your dojo 20 minutes early and doing a bit of your own training as well might you or things like that yeah, yeah you can, can do that i mean but well, i i um, i do like going to the gym because i i like uh um meeting up with people there i like having the spotters to train with i, I enjoy all of that so i do have me my gym membership 
I, I do have a set of weights. Uh, I've got a pretty good set of weights. I've got a squat rack and I've got a bench and I've got chin-up bars and all that kind of stuff. I've got that with me as well. Um, stuck away in the garage, which I use on a fairly regular basis. Um, but I've also got, uh, I, in my living room, I have a set of relatively heavy dumbbells. That's it, two two dumbbells. So, for example, if my if I haven't been out the train during the day, which kind of goes back to our back, back question before, children are in bed. I can't leave and go to the garage. I can't leave and go to the gym. I can, however, while my children are fast asleep in bed, pick up those dumbbells and give myself one hell of a workout in 30 minutes. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, I, I get to the point where I feel every muscle's aching and I feel physically sick. And so, you really force yourself to do it as well, don't you? Even if you're not really thinking of, if you don't really feel like it as well. Oh, so. Yeah, because I always find that having done it, I feel a lot more at ease with mm. myself than if than if I had. So for Jeremy's point is, you know, it doesn't need a gym membership. You know what I mean? It, um, yeah. it, it, it will at some point need some education on how to use weights effectively and efficiently. Uh, press ups are uh, great fun. You know, I mean, they're, they're good good exercises that they are chin very useful. Chin ups and sit ups, he mentions uh, as well. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, chin ups are a great one for your, your biceps and your back. You know, you just need something you can hang off for those. The thing with press-ups generally is um, if you're looking to develop strength with them, uh, at a certain point, your own body weight doesn't give you enough resistance. So you're working... When I do press-ups, I'm working muscular endurance. You know what I mean? So at my age, I try and get 50 out in a go. That, that, that's mine, you see. So that, that's typically what I, I aim for, which was I could do very easily at one point in my life. I'm a bit older now. It's a little bit harder. But, but 50 is what I aim for. Now, if I, if I was lifting the weights, I, I, I aim for six repetitions or eight repetitions you know what i mean sometimes 10 um because i'm I'm looking to develop strength so the press up won't develop strength for me it will develop muscular endurance but simple things like i mean uh, my children i've got three kids of 11 9 and 7 um uh, like helping me do that they'll lie on my back while i do press ups so when my eldest son is you know quite a big guy for 11 you know mm. that 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 he enjoys it. It's really funny kind of lying on dad while he does press-ups. The second thing is, you know, it really works with chest muscles. So I'll do a set with him. He jumps off. His younger brother jumps on. I'll do a set with him. Then my daughter jumps on and I do what I can do to finish. So you know, I'm not suggesting, you know, that children are only useful as a, tra- <laughs> <laughs> a training aid. But I'm saying there's, there's all kinds of things you can do. Because um, I, I, I travel a lot as well. I mean, sometimes I haven't always got my equipment with me. So I've done things where I've been in hotel rooms where I've just picked up a chair and done bicep curls with it. So really, I mean, the main point for this is to improvise yeah, yeah for, 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 fine, fine. Mm. Be, be aware that if you want to develop strength then uh, um, press ups are good for what they're good for they're not a substitute for heavy weight lifting if you're yeah, looking to develop that strength sure. thing. so you need to find uh, ways and means of doing it but you don't need a gym membership and with a bit of imagination it's uh, simple things you get um, uh, two empty cartons and fill them up full of water that, that's it. You get, get a bucket. Get a bucket full of water, and then suddenly you, you've got weights there. Do you know yeah. what I mean? You just it, it, there's all kinds of things you can use. Sometimes you know? it can be a lot easier to do something that's in your own house and have to drag yourself or mentally prepare yourself to go a mile or two miles to the gym anyway. So it might work out easier. For, uh, anyway. uh, uh, absolutely, and it saves time too because you haven't got the time of going to the gym and all that kind of stuff. So you can. Do, do, I would suggest just you, if you can invest in a set of dumbbells, a good set of dumbbells, you'd be amazed at what you can get done with them. So whilst we're still on um, the subject of Jeremy's questions, he just quickly he wanted to know what your favourite exercises were that you know to help um, your sidekick, if you have any. Uh, on, on the side, well, the best one is the sidekick itself. itself yeah. yeah, you know, I so I mean, it, it's a kind of it's a 
you know, bad answer, but uh, we mentioned before, doing them slowly is great because it develops the muscle and the, the balance for it as well. Um, it's a flexibility issue though as well for a lot of people. It, it is, yeah. So stretching can help. But, but again, even then doing them slowly can help as well. So sometimes yeah. people can't kick high enough because they're not flexible enough. Yeah. The other time is the muscles aren't strong enough to chamber the knee up. So by doing it slowly, it helps develop the musculature around it to get that kind of good kicking. I I'd also much prefer, if I want to work my psychic, I'll work it on a bag or a shield. You know, I much prefer to work it where I've got something to hit than work it in the air, you know, because you get a better feeling for the, the technique. So if you be specific, my favourite way of working the psychic would be with a partner who is good at holding a shield. So he can get, you know, so he can advance in on me and I can time it to hit it at the right time when he comes in mm. and that kind of so stuff. The psychic's quite controversial anyway, though, isn't it? With I see some people that love it, some people that hate, hate it. Obviously, the people that are good at it like it. I've seen it executed with immense power. And I've seen, and I'm, I'm bad for this, I just cannot get any power into it at all. A lot of it's um, um, lack of muscle, a lot of it is um, technique as well. And I think it's... It's different for each person, isn't it? It is, yeah. Well, I mean, you get that. I mean, you hardly ever see them using kind of MMA, for example. Yeah. So, cause, so MMA people tend to kind of write it off as a bad kick. I mean, to me, you know, it's the, good though because you can't see it coming as well. Sometimes people don't expect that if they're in a fight with someone. Do they? I think if you're if if you're assuming that the person that you're fighting or in that confrontation with is untrained, um, people aren't really. From what I can, from my own prejudice, going, are going to expect a sidekick to come out. Does that make sense? Well, maybe. I mean, it also depends on, on how it's um, used as well. I mean, I have used sidekicks in real situations quite effectively. Um, not like as in middle level ones or turning level ones, but just slamming one into somebody's thighs, you know what I mean, can be very effective, especially if you don't. Even, if you look at the way it's used in Katna, where people are gripped and held while they're delivered as, as well. So it's a worthwhile kick. It's like anything else you've got to use at the right point. You know, um, it's a right kick at the right time, I think. So for improving the, the kick itself is practice of it. Get a bag is great as well. Swing a bag away from it, kick as it comes in. Lots and lots of repetitions. And again, the thing with it, when it with any technique, you don't realise it's getting better. You stu the other people in the club will notice it's getting better before you do. So. Right, okay. Um, lots of repetition. So our last question is from Christopher Webb, who happens to be my brother. <laughs> He says, hi, Ian, I would like to hear your thoughts on scenario training and whether you think there is a place for it within today's karate systems. What do you feel the pros and cons are of such training? Do you know of anyone who's actively using scenario training as an integrated part of their karate as opposed to a separate method without a support system? If so, which approach would you favour and do, they, do you have any top tips for getting the most out of such training? Yeah. No, no, um, so we'll define what scenario training is for people. It's basically recreating self-defense situations within the dojo or wherever you're training. That's basically what we're talking mm. about. So creating things that realistically mimic uh, um, self-defense. Now, here's the thing, right? If someone was training for competition karate, right, you know, so WKF-style points karate, they would say, right, we've got to spar in the way that we're going to spar in the competition, and we'll do lots and lots of practice at it so we get good at it. It's therefore entirely illogical for people to go, right, when we do self-defense, it'll just magically happen. You know, scenario training is, is sparring for self-defense. That's essentially what it is. It's saying we'll recreate what we're going to face so people can be prepared for it and get good at it. Yeah. Uh, so to me, it's, it's a must. It's an absolute must. For anyone who's claiming to be going to be teaching self-defense, it needs to be part of it. So things that typically aren't included are verbal exchanges beforehand and multiple opponents being ambushed, been suddenly been taken um, unawares, 
the fact that you can win by escaping is some pe- thing that people just completely forget because they're conditioned to fight the way out of of, of everything. Yeah. Um, uh, d- I don't know if I've mentioned, but de-escalation and dissuasion skills need to be a valid option. It's no good if every scenario ends in people swinging fists because that's not realistic. Absolutely. So there's all that kind of stuff needs to be in there. There's the stuff we mentioned before as well. It gives people a chance to experience adrenaline, uh, the chaos, the fear that's involved, and to... Uh, debrief on what worked well and what didn't so they create better habits so i i think it's an absolute must another important one is um legalities should be included so when we're analyzing it afterwards we need to say what is that action defensible you know i mean am i going to end up in trouble for that in 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 court another really useful thing to do is when you've done your scenarios is is get the students to practice giving legal statements about what they've just done so somebody say, tell me what you've just done. And then you get used to making sure that you put it across in the correct way and not in a way that's going to land you into trouble. Mm. Getting into the habit of saying, um, look, I was, I'm scared. I was acting in self-defense. I don't want to say anything until my solicitor arrives. You know what I mean? That, that kind of thing. Just, just those kind of things need to be practiced and, and, and a, an integral part of it. Um, it for, if you're training karate for self-defense, then that needs, should be part of your karate. Um, and I get Christopher's point is some people do the kind of scenario based stuff and there's within those scenarios the techniques that you use the tactics that you use the grabbing the striking and everything else need to have came from somewhere it's easy for scenario training to become exceptionally ineffective as well isn't it it's not easy it's not easily done in terms of, you mean the actual scenarios are unrealistic? The, yeah, the, yeah. the scenarios that, you, that, that people construct, yeah. Yeah, yeah oh, absolutely. And, and this is the thing with it as well. Is it, it is an, it's really difficult. So an if you did some in America or something, the threat that some Americans might face, or different types, might be different. I mean, you mentioned this to me, didn't you, about, um, was it Rory Miller that, that was doing some scenario training with you? And... Um, You'd obviously w- really liked the stuff that he did. Yeah, that was uh, that was when um, I, I know I've just re- remembered what you're talking about. That was when I was at Mark McYoung's barbecue, yeah. and they did some scenarios there. Um, that was in 2010, wasn't it? Uh, um, yeah, a, mm. a few years ago. Um, and one of the ones uh, they've done a variety of them. You see, so there was so simple ones like you know being in an airport and in a queue, and the guy in front of you is getting annoyed, and simple things that you could just simply walk away from. And then they did somewhere, you know, you're sitting in a car, and the guy puts a gun through the window, says, "Get out the car." You know what I mean? So if you, no reason why you just get out the car. The next one was okay, but your newborn baby's in the back seat of the car. Mm. You know what I mean? And these are things that kind of change. Changing the dynamics. It does. And, it, and the other thing is as well, as you point, it just changed from culture to culture and place to place. Yeah. So for example, living in the UK where handguns are rare, you know, you hardly ever hear of them, you know what I mean? Because they're illegal. Um, uh, you know, I've just said for those listening from overseas, you know, if someone over here gets shot, it tends to make national news. It's a big, big yeah, deal, yeah. you know. Whereas I, I would, that's not the case in America, really. So again, but if I was in America, I'd need a, we'd need a lot more scenarios that would involve handguns because there's a lot more handguns. You don't need quite to, to do that in the UK, but there's other kind of considerations as well. You see, yeah. I would also say in America, um, the, the, the litigious element is something that they're more concerned about. They've got more lawyers per person than anywhere else mm-hmm. in the world. You see, so um, and our law, UK, I don't self-defense I think is very good you know what I mean in terms of in principle when you see it written down it it allows people to to make mistakes it acknowledges the the, the fear that you've got it says it's you know we, we use, can preemptively strike we can preemptively we? strike you know so there's those kind of things so for example if you were in a country where preemptive striking was not allowed 
Um, you then America. you don't you have to change it. Well, I, I, again, I can't say from from area to area, but some I know, states they. It's I, I don't know, but I know when I've mentioned it to Americans, they get concerned about the the, the <laughs> legal, but which I always find quite bizarre. <laughs> We're okay, shoot one another, that's fine, but there's, <laughs> there's a concern about hitting first. But it varies from place to place, you know. So, so whatever scenarios that you do do need to be relevant, and that goes back to getting the crime statistics as well. You know, look at the type of crime that's happening in the area wherever you are, then then recreate it uh, the thing with it as well is it can be realistic it will never be real so mm. if you think of things like police and armies and everyone else spend thousands and thousands and thousands trying to make their training as realistic as possible yeah so to do that really realistically um in a dojo is, is beyond the realms of what most clubs can afford you know so yeah good point so you've got to kind of do what you can do you know what i mean with what you've got and acknowledge the kind of feelings in what you've got but it, it should be a part of what everybody does um on a on a syllabus on your syllabus what's more important to you um sparring or scenario training if you had to pick one yeah, yeah. what would you choose and i know obviously people different instructors approach you 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 inject your sparring with as much realism as possible yeah, I, yeah. I can see that a mile off um but i've spoken to some instructors um i know i'm um, gavin maholland um i know that he's very big on on teaching sparring i'm not sure if he actually does much scenario training himself and i remember him uh, personally saying to me once he would be um very very suspicious of a club that wanted to extract sparring from any grading syllabus yeah I, 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 I would agree with him yeah yeah no so um um i, I agree with what he's saying there completely so for me it's it's uh you have to do both um depending on what your objectives are so uh if you're wanting to so for example right if you do like a, a scenario based drill Mm. With within that, the techniques that you use need to have been honed somewhere. Yeah. So, um, if you want people to say, "Look, I want you to develop your ability to escape a grip," independent of the scenario you find yourself in, I want you to be able to uh, wrestle yourself free from a grip. So you say, "Right, the kind of sparring we're going to do here is one of you is going to take a grip, and the other one has to wrestle free and escape. And when they've done that, they just re-engage and do it again and again and again. So that's sparring. It's not scenario training." Yeah. But what it's doing there is it's giving people the ability to be able to get away from people, which will then manifest itself in the scenario training. Like you were, we were um, at Swindon together doing when you did yeah, that yeah. seminar, and you were uh, explaining before we went on to do the flow drills. You were saying something very, very similar about the use of the flow drill and not to um, get it wrong and take yeah, it for something that it's not. No, that, that's exactly that's what I was saying. The, the point I was making there about flow drills are flow is something that happens when techniques have gone wrong. Yeah. You know, you hit the guy once, and if it connects with him, he drops in a big heap. There's no flow. There's one solid shot, and that's the end of it. The ability to flow means that you haven't finished them yet. So the longer you flow in real life, the worse you're doing. Yeah. You know, um, but that doesn't. Having said that, you need to develop the ability to flow because things. Yeah. things can go wrong and, and this is part of the problem that I, I constantly have now is people look at things in insul isolation yeah uh, it's like for example youtube clips i get this a lot on my youtube clips i can put a youtube clip up and people go ah but it should be drilled live it should be done with this mm. you should have this in and you should and i think yeah we do all of that but i can't show you the, the totality of training in one youtube clip sure. so you, you need your sparring you need your self-defense training you need uh people to resist things you, you do need to say the scenario training you need your impact training you need good technique 
and you need to bring all that together in an integrated way because if you take any element on its own it's never enough so it's like you, you can look at a boxer and go that's ridiculous all they ever do is skip you don't get into a ring pick up a rope and skip you know yeah, what I mean? but yeah. they don't do that it's part of the, the big picture or you can watch a boxer hit a bag and go oh they shouldn't do that because bags don't hit back you know what I mean or you can watch a boxer shatter spar and say that's ridiculous there's no opponent there do you know what I mean? Or you can watch them spar, and most professional fighters don't spar full contact because they want to make a living for it. They don't want to get brain damaged in training, you know. So uh, if they're sparring with a bit of control, people go, yeah, but that's not what they're going to face in the ring, and yada, yada, yada. But when you look at the big picture, you say, well, they can hit hard because they whack it on a bag. They can move really well because they kind of, I've watched them in the shadow sparring. That's kind of almost like free-form kata. Um, I've watched them spar so I know they can land the shots. You see, it all kind of comes comes together. Yeah, that makes and that's sense. what we, we need to do as karateka. It needs to be kind of holistic in line with our training. So if Gavin was to say he would be suspicious of anybody that wanted to remove sparring completely from the syllabus, I would agree with him yeah. because those core skills aren't being developed. But if we're doing self-defense training, then we need to practice the verbal side of it, the de-escalation, the escape skills, and the, all that kind of stuff. And the scenario training is always say, look, you've got all this now. Let's give you a little scenario and let's play it out. Let's test it. And you choose what techniques, tactics, methods are most appropriate for the situation. Is it punching them as hard as you can? Or is it talking them down? Or is it fleeing and everything else? So, um, yeah, there's uh, you know a lot to that kind of topic. So just to go back on to um, part of his question where he said, do you know anyone who where that scenario training seems to be, uh, where, where they're the sort of pioneer in their field for it? Is there a, a name that you can... Put to that, or uh, um, lots of people have done it. I mean, I can look back in old texts, and Geechee Funakoshi talks about doing things like this. What about today? Um, about multiple trainings. Well, you know, I think of like John Titchen does a yeah, great I'm job not, of it. I think you know, and, and, and John would probably be the in the UK at least. I'd say he's probably the go-to guy for that. I think. Mm. But there's plenty of others. You know, I, I think off the top of my head, you know, I've um, done this stuff with uh, Jeff Thompson's done it. I've done this stuff with uh, uh, Morteague does it. Um, um, uh, Peter Considine, I've, I've you know, I've, I've, I've certainly done it with. Uh, Rory Miller does some really good stuff on, on that as you know so there's, there's lots of people i can point to who do it just lastly and this is a question from me really um do you think that say you're, you're doing your scenario training with, with your group do you think that um using impact reduction gear detracts away from what you are teaching trying to teach because i know that most people do use some form of um it's, it's impact Armor. reduction it's not um, yeah, complete yeah, yeah. protection no, no, no. you get smacked and it was still hurt and that, that's the point so you can be realistic it's never real so um, we don't use armour using armour would be traditional uh, Mabuni used armour there's pictures of him, of, of him doing it uh, John Titchen uses the armour and uses yeah. it very well um, but however uh, the, 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 all the armour I've seen anyone can throw a decent shot or knock a guy out right through it you know what I mean because it, it takes it, it, it dulls it you know what I mean? It doesn't take the percussive effect of it out. So um, when we do our drills... But would you go, obviously, I, I'm pre am I right in presuming that you wouldn't then go on go as full on as, say, my club might because we're wearing the impact reduction gear? Is that right or is that wrong? Probably wrong, I would think. Um, so your guys would go to sort of knock each other out? No, right? no, no. It, it depends on, again, it depends on how you structure your, your training. So, for Absolutely. example, the um, easy simple one is one of the best forms of impact reduction gear is have a decent pair of gloves on. So if you're using the thin MMA-style gloves, yeah. you, you, then you're going to need a helmet on it there. If you're yeah. using slightly larger gloves, which is what I would use, then, then, then you can still kind of practice it kind of realistically. But again, it's easy with the thing, right? So most students that come to us aren't 
professional fighters, right? You know what I mean? What they want to do is they want to have good quality self-defense skills, which will keep them safe because they want to be kept away from danger and personal harm. Yeah. So if you go into a dojo where there's a high risk of personal danger and personal harm, it's self-defeating. Do you know what I mean? The most dangerous place you ever go will be in the dojo for most people. As we said, you know what I mean? Violence is relatively uncommon. So if you've got people who go, well, we do it bare-fisted and full contact, and if people survive, they do, and if they don't, they don't. That's very realistic, but it's also highly dangerous and I would say very irresponsible. So when whatever form of training you're doing, if you, uh, like Rory Miller slows things down, you know, he says, you know, do it and we'll do it slowly so you still get the dynamics. Well, obviously mm. that is a good way of doing things in some ways, but introduce the fault of, well, it's slow now. You know what I mean? So I'm learning to react and move to yeah. slow techniques, but, you know, it has its advantages and disadvantages. Yeah. If you go, okay, well, I'll, I will we'll hit each other full force, well, we have the problems of danger. If you put on uh, protective equipment and armour, it can in one way it can develop some. It can also make people more confident than they would be otherwise. And when the armor's and when the armor's not there, they're more fearful than they were. If they practice without armor on, and then they're in a situation where they haven't got armor, well, it's the same or same-ish. If they've always got armor on, they feel well, I'm safe because I've got a head guard on. So whichever, whichever and I'm I mean, not. So it can be good for introducing people that are being introduced to it. Oh, absolutely, then... that, correctly, and then you could, you could take it off at a later date. Absolutely, absolutely. But the, the point I'm making is, there's no uh, wrong or right with it. It's it's how you integrate everything you're doing into the whole. So the, for the way that we do things, uh, I don't feel we'd gain anything from adding in the armor from the way that the, the way that we we we, um, that we, we train um, together. Uh, and, and the way that we kind of structure it um, but that's not to say that another group would say well the way that we do it the armour would be more beneficial for us you know what I mean so based on the way that I do things you know I've looked at what's out there and I've thought well for what it gives me the student is still going to have to control blows because the one thing my group does well is they all hit like mules you know what <laughs> I mean they are big big hitters so um, adding the armour on the other one is it might make it more dangerous because I wouldn't put it past some people to go well I've got armour on I can hit them a bit harder now uh, you're absolutely correct yeah. so I've, I've literally seen it before my eyes so many times and you really really can get knocked I've seen people get knocked oh, absolutely, absolutely. I've, uh, I've never seen armour yet the false confidence part is a really really key the, point the one that I have seen um, that um, obviously you've seen it um, again Rory and them made use of this where they use like, almost like an American football helmet with padding around it and duct tape so it's this great big mm. kind of helmet on it that can take a blow but again it's unrealistic because the guy's head is now twice the size it was <laughs> so some blows that would have missed will now hit and make it be quite effective yeah do you know what i mean so whichever way you do it there's going to be problems you just mm. need to be aware of what those problems are it, it, it can give more yeah even things like secondary impact from the sort of the types of helmets that you're using head spinning mm. i mean i have used um but I, and also you can use the equipment I mean, we, we've done this where one of my uh, um, senior students, you know, used to he used to wear a head guard because he had problems with one of his eyes. Yeah. So, but people used to use the head guard against him. They'd grip it or they'd hit it in such a way it would spin a little bit to distract his vision or they'd know where the blind spots were on the helmet. Do you know what I mean? Which angles can come through? You see, and I've said this. To people are cruel. They are. I said this. Che cheating's always allowed. You know what I mean? I always encourage people to cheat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if someone's got a head guard on, it's well, how can you use that head guard against them? So they'll instantly find ways of doing it. You see. Mm. So, um, but yeah, no. So I'm not anti-armor or pro-armor really. I'm just saying it has to fit with what you do. You know, for, for, for using it, John Titchin and his scenario best training, I think he's, he's excellent. And I've seen the stuff that you guys do, and I think it's really good and fits with the, 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 the way that you train. Yeah. As a personal choice. I've chosen not to use it because um, the the benefits we would get from it would cause 
a conflict it causes problems elsewhere I'm not you know if you know I'm not saying that we never would and it would be negative to do it I'm just saying as it is at the moment I don't really feel it's something that's that's necessary or that we gain too much through um, through introducing it you see so but um, wise and wherefores I think that's about us for these, isn't it? So th thanks, uh, everyone, for those questions. Uh, we're running, I'm looking at the thing now, we're about an hour and 15 minutes, and I've got the, you know, the intros and outros to add as well, so it's going to be a long podcast, this one. So th there are a couple more um, that we've, we've got to hear from other sources, but I'll, I'll leave them for another time. So if we didn't get to your question, I nevertheless appreciate you answer, uh, asking them, and I hope you've enjoyed this uh, discussion of mine and uh, Becky's. Well, I hope you enjoyed that uh, mammoth podcast. <laughs> and uh, thanks very much to uh, Becky for her help with that. Uh, again, I think it was a really uh, good way to do the questions and I uh, hope you found our conversations uh, around them uh, of interest. So, yeah, okay, hopefully uh, I'll be back with another one before the end of the year. If I don't manage to make that in, then obviously thanks for all your support in 2012. Obviously, as I've said before, there'd be no point in doing these if people didn't listen to them. And I'm very grateful that so many of you do. Uh, and obviously, you know, all the podcasts and the online videos and everything else, totally free to, to everyone, but obviously they're not free to produce. So I'm particularly grateful to everyone who's organised and attended seminars, anyone who's bought the books and the DVDs, um, anyone who's made little donations via the site, because you're the ones who, who keep the whole thing kind of um, rolling along and making sure that I can continue to, uh, to do this for you. So, yeah, many thanks for all your support, um, and I'll be back with another podcast uh, very soon. Okay, thanks very much. Bye now.